in the midst of a revolutionary time in France, and she falls in love with this radical college student who wants to change the world. And through a series of events, this person ends up getting shot in a battle with the authorities, and Valjean, undercover, saves this young boy and drags him through the Paris sewers covered in all kinds of fecal matter to save this young man who is going to take the only person he loves out of his life through marriage. And he saves Marius. And Cosette and Marius get married. And Valjean is scared to death that his past will one day catch up to him and ruin the lives of these young people who he's invested so much in. And so he comes up with this lie, this story of going away. And he leaves across town and holes up in a decrepit room until he's too sick to go on. And finally, word gets back to Cosette about Valjean's life, the sacrifices he made, and just before he dies... He's able to see Cosette again along with Marius and hear how much they love him and how much they're grateful to him for the life that he's lived. And he's able to die his last few moments in peace, knowing that he redeemed himself in some way for the crimes of his past. It's a tragic tale. Every time I see the play or read the story or write sermons where I don't know what story to share, so I'm just going to go to Les Mis because that's what I do, I'm drawn back in. It's tragic because what Jean Valjean didn't know was that he was already loved. Before any of the heroic acts, before the great sacrifices, he was loved by a pastor, by family, by a young Cosette, by many others throughout the story, and he never recognizes it, or at least doesn't think that it's enough. And what he didn't know was that he was already forgiven for those past crimes and any wrongs he committed along the way trying to make them right. And because he didn't know this, that he was loved and that he was forgiven, he suffered far more than he needed to. He suffered from fear of his past catching up to him. He suffered of loneliness in his later years when he was away from the people he loved because he was worried about that past. He grew sick and frail alone until a final reunion before he died. It's tragic because none of the suffering, none of the inner turmoil was necessary. Because the things he feared that he would be viewed as unlovable or unforgivable were just not true. And so Psalm 32 is a psalm of David. And David writes this psalm, he tells us early on, reflecting on the experience of his own confession. His own confession of sin. He committed some sin. We don't know what it was in the context of this psalm. We don't know what of the many things that David did, this man after God's own heart, sinned a whole bunch. We're not sure which one of them inspired this psalm. But we know he committed some sin that was grave enough that he wouldn't tell anyone about it and he wouldn't confess it to God and he held it inside 
until it started to eat them up, right? How many people have ever been somewhere along the equator at summertime? A few people. Island life is slow for a reason, right? It's hard to move and do things in the heat, and so David says, holding this sin inside without confessing it, confessing it to you, God, is like the heat on a summer's day. It made me sluggish and slow and weak. It weighed me down. All I wanted was some ginger ale and like an umbrella over me. Something like that, right? This secrecy that he kept even from God. His unwillingness to admit to himself and to God that he had, in fact, sinned began to eat him up from the inside out, began to destroy him. And then David does this radical thing in the psalm. He confesses. All he does is confess that he's a sinner and that he has sinned to God, something God already knew. He just confessed. And immediately, David was forgiven. Immediately, God cast it aside. And then we have David, as he is wont to do in rapture, talking about the goodness of God, until he comes to the end of the psalm. And he tells those who are eavesdropping in on this song he sings to God. He says to them that steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. And there's a couple things we might learn from this psalm. One, that in confessing, we are already forgiven. As the words are coming out of your mouth, God has forgiven you. As your heart has been stirred to move toward confessing, the forgiveness has happened. And in being forgiven in that way, we're reminded that we are already loved. That God loved us before the sin, in the sin, and after the sin. In our sinfulness itself, in our uh, kind of predisposition to do the wrong thing, to harm our neighbors or our enemies, or to break our trust with our Father in heaven. The love is already there. Now, I don't know, and I can't gather from the bit of research that I did, that anyone knows exactly the occasion for this psalm. But there's a story from the life of David that it reminded me of. And it can be found in 2 Samuel 24 or 1 Chronicles 21, a couple of uh, slightly different versions of this story. After David becomes king, through a series of rather miraculous events, uh, dealing with Goliath and Saul and a whole host of other things. David, this former shepherd boy, becomes the king of Israel, unified Israel, the height of Israel's ancient glory. And as that, uh, his power is accumulating and growing, he comes to this place. We're not told exactly why, but he decides he's going to count all of the people of Israel and all of the soldiers of Israel. And this makes God pretty mad. It doesn't say exactly why theologians have tried to figure this out. Some say it's a demonstration that David began to lose trust in God for safety 
and put it more in his military power. Others suggest, like his son Solomon would do a few years later, that what David was doing was taking a head count so he could impose some kind of oppressive tax to exploit the people. It's unclear exactly why God was displeased by this. It doesn't, the text doesn't tell us forthright. But we know that God is displeased. Something about David going against the wisdom of his advisors and his elders, doing this head count, makes God angry. And so God gives David three options as a punishment for this sin. God tells David, you can endure three years of famine for your country, three months being on the run, fleeing from your enemies who are trying to kill you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, or of a pestilence that will come upon you and your people. And this kind of scares David a little bit, as you can imagine. Imagine God coming to you. you got three options. What you going to choose? And this is how we know David, even in all of his sinfulness, had a heart after God. Because David's response after some discernment is this. I am in great distress. Yeah, the understatement. Let me fall in the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But let me not fall into human hands. And so he chooses option three. Three days of the sword of the Lord or of pestilence, depending on which uh, version of the story you're reading. Uh, Pestilence meaning like bad disease coming through town, right? Uh, And the sword begins. Israelites start dying in the fields and in the countryside. And as the angel of the Lord, who is carrying the sword, comes near Jerusalem, God relents and says, stop, pause, put this punishment on hold. This city is where the majority of my people live. And so there's this image of the angel with the sword standing at someone's threshing floor. And David sees the angel of the Lord on the outskirts of Jerusalem, just waiting for the word to go in and wipe a whole bunch of people out because of what David has done. And David sees this, and he confesses his own guilt. And he says, it is no one else's fault, God. It was me and me alone. It was my decision to do this count. Punish me. Not them. Spare the people of Israel. And the angel or a prophet prophet comes to David as he's staring at at this angel with this fiery sword or something. And says to him to go up and build an altar in this place and make a sacrifice to God. And as David goes to do this, several people who want to please the king offer him the materials to build the altar, and the animals to be sacrificed. And David says, no, this is my sin. I will bear the cost. And he builds the altar, and he makes the sacrifice, and the angel goes away. God ends the punishment early 
It's not three days of the sword of the Lord. And David knew what many of us don't, or what we too often forget, which is that God is always more merciful than we are. And God seeks to show us that mercy because God is loving and compassionate. I don't know what you would choose if you had committed some sin and heard from God you had three choices. Federal way would experience three years of famine. There would not be enough food for everyone to eat and stay healthy. Or three months on the run trying to hide from some enemies who are trying to get you. Or three days of an angel with a sword coming through and slicing people down. But I think most of us would be scared of the famine and scared to death of the sword of the angel of the Lord. And might think we got the wits to run around for a few months. Right? That there's something about humans who want to kill us that's less scary than God wanting to kill us. Right? But David in whatever wisdom he didn't have when he made the count, had the wisdom to see that God would be more merciful in the punishment than those humans for those three months. And he threw himself on the mercy of God. And God proved David right. He ended the punishment before the three days were over. And this story and this psalm And it's kind of crazy in many parts of it. Remind us of a few things. One, God loves you. This comes straight out of the psalm. God created you in God's image and declared you good. And God knew you before you were born and reached out to be in relationship with you before you ever showed up on this earth. You are loved. You were loved before you committed whatever sins you may have committed in the action of committing those sins and in the after when you've hid them and covered them from yourself or God or your neighbors. God loves you even while you're a sinner. No matter what you've done, God loves you. No matter how you've hurt yourself or others, God loves you. God loved you so much, he sent his only son to earth so that you can know that God loves you and that you can be forgiven 2,000 years ago. It's in confessing that we have sinned, that we fall short, that we are merely human, that we are not perfect in following the ways of God. It's in confessing this that we receive God's forgiveness. The forgiveness of the one who loves us already a long time ago. One thing we learn from David's psalm and from David's story is that God wants to forgive us if only we confess. If only we would confess. God wants us to be liberated from shame and from fear and from the pains we inflict on ourselves by holding it all all in. God wants to liberate us from all that through his forgiveness. 
But we have to want to be forgiven more than we want to live this life of a lie of self-sufficiency or of righteousness or of strength or of perfection. We have to want forgiveness more than we want to be the one who doesn't need it. We live in a culture where that isn't necessarily the default. Some of our most powerful politicians got there saying in public they have nothing to be forgiven for. We live in a culture where sometimes the way to get ahead is to not to deny any of your weaknesses. Don't put them on your resume. Don't talk about them in your interview. Don't let your neighbors know that things aren't quite right in your house. We live in a culture, no matter what reality TV is putting out on the screen, in our day-to-day lives, we're more like Jean Valjean. We hold it in. It eats us up inside. We don't even confess it to God in private, in prayer. And so we don't receive the benefits of this forgiveness that God wants to pour out upon us. But when we confess and the forgiveness happens in the confessing, we experience the love of God. God proves that he loves us over and over and over by constantly forgiving us, no matter how many sins we confess. And experiencing God's love, we then become open to loving to being loved by our neighbor and loving them, to being able to love our enemies, what God calls us to. It's in receiving the love of God we are then able to move out into the world in a posture of love. And all it takes is confession. We're in the time of Lent, and Lent comes with many practices, and Drew has been trying to walk us through some of them, explore them, uh, dig into this wealth of wisdom that Christians have passed on to us through the centuries. And one of those practices is the practice of confession. I have a friend and colleague uh, who is an Episcopal theologian who recently tweeted something like, uh, don't worry if you've already broken whatever it is you're fasting from during Lent. Whatever your discipline was, if you've already broken that discipline, don't worry, that's kind of the point. That's what it means to be human, is that we are not Christ. This, ser- this season of Lent is an experience of remembering we are mere dust, and to dust we shall return, but there is a resurrection anyway. And so part of the practice of Lent is the practice of confessing that we fall short, that we're imperfect, that we need the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace of God in our lives, and that it is enough to know that we are loved by a God who wants to forgive us if only we would confess. And so today, I encourage you to be more like David and less like Jean Valjean. And this really might be the only way I would encourage you to do that because I really like Jean Valjean. But in this, in the willingness to confess and therefore receive forgiveness before this deathbed experience that Valjean has, be more like David, 
Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Confess your humanity, your weakness, your sin. And in doing so, be prepared to receive the forgiveness of God because it is coming at you anyway. So receive it. Know you're loved. And then you'll be able to go forth into the world a beloved child of God. And that is something worth writing a song about.